Good morning. Good morning. So it's awesome to be able to speak in this series of building blocks for sustainable faith and how we add to that faith. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Terry, if you were paying close attention, he made an important point when he said, what we practice, we perfect. And I want to pick up on that practice theme, and I also want to dive a little deeper in here to 2 Peter 1.5 as it relates to these building blocks for sustainable faith. So uh, it's not in your hand up, handout because I took up all the real estate with all of my other um, verses here. So we're going to put it up on the board for you. But 2 Peter 1.5, let's just refresh ourselves. So Peter writes, so make every effort to apply the benefits of these promises to your life. Then your faith will produce a life of moral excellence. A life of moral excellence leads to knowing God better. I love this verse because it's sequential in some ways of the things that can happen. If we make every effort to apply these promises, we can lead, it can lead to a life of moral excellence. And as we practice a life of moral excellence, then we get to know God better. It's like, wow, thank you, Lord, for giving me the opportunity to find out how it is that I can even get closer to you. And so it comes to this idea of practice. And practice makes what? No, 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 no. <laughs> practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Because you see, those things that we practice that are wrong, we get really good at. Right? Practice makes permanent. The things that we practice that are right and good, we can get good at those. We never get the perfect. But as Pastor Terry said, what we practice, we perfect. So practice makes permanent. Now, practice is an interesting word because uh, some of us probably grew up with that word. Um, anybody ever tried to learn an instrument? Yes, we did. What did we have to do? We had to practice. No one wanted to practice, right? Anybody like to cook? You know, you just don't become a good cook. You have to practice cooking. And then there's this thing called sports, right? So we always had to practice, practice, practice. So maybe it's because this is Ryder Cup weekend, but I kind of got golf on my mind this weekend. Now, I'm going to tell you that I'm a golfer, but I'm a bad golfer. And I'm an honest bad golfer. Because a lot of golfers will tell you that they're bad, and then when you get out there, they're not really bad, right? They're really good. I'm a bad golfer. Because in the golf world, you know, it's sort of respectable if you can break 100. That doesn't happen to me very often. So a lot of times, I'm out there just kind of slogging around. And the problem is, I play a lot of golf. And I don't get any better year after year after year. And so what does everybody tell me? Well, Rusty, you need to go get lessons, which sounds really good on the surface. Lessons, coaching, it's all good until you have to go there and do it. See, I don't like lessons because of a lot of things, a lot of reasons, and I'm actually going to even share a few of those with you. I don't like lessons because lessons make you do things in new ways. And if it's an athletic thing, you have to use new muscles. And new muscles equal pain. I don't particularly like pain. 
You know, and then new ways of doing things also make you try things that you're not good at, which actually can cause embarrassment. And I don't particularly like being embarrassed. And I always question this idea, do I really know that the person who's teaching me knows exactly what they're supposed to know? Because in golf, what you do is you go to somebody and they'll go, you know what you do? You got to widen your stance. So you do that for a while and nothing gets any better. So you go to somebody else and they go, you know what you got to do is you got to close your stance. And then you do that and it's nothing any better. So I get this question about, do they really know what they're talking about? And then there's this idea, I get this thing about authority. I mean, I'm not really that big on authority because authority means I have to obey somebody. Because if I go to a lesson and I don't do what they tell me to do, if I don't obey them, then I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting money. So why would I even do it in the first place? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here for a second and say that most of us don't like authority. Can that be a true statement? Most of us don't like authority. Right? We don't like what comes from it. it. Because authority makes us sometimes do what we don't want to do. It makes us make sacrifices. It makes us make sacrifice of our time. It makes us do things in another way. And it's funny because authority shows up in all different kinds of ways in our life. I'm going to show you a little clip of somebody who knows maybe a little something about authority. Everyone, come in. Come on in. Hey, listen up, everybody. Zoe's down from Hanover. I'm making chili for everyone tonight. Okay. Oh, oh great. chili. Great. great. All right. Uh, you know what? Let's do this. Everybody, look down at the big seal in the middle of my carpet. Now, everybody look back up at me. Zoe's coming down from Hanover, and I'm making chili for everyone tonight. That's great. great. That's terrific. There. You see how... Benevolent I can be when everybody just does what I tell them to do. Now, sit down. So I love that clip from the West Wing. Uh, last night, somebody says, yeah, but it's kind of grainy. I said, yeah, that's because of 15 years ago. That was before high-definition TV. You know, so, but I love that clip because there's the President of the United States, you know, using his authority. But, you know, we run into this kind of authority all the time. Think about it on our jobs. Where's our boss ask us to have meetings? In their office, right? Seldom do they come to our office for their meetings. It's our boss that tells us that, you know what, I know you don't want to do it, but you got to work this weekend. That kind of authority we may not like. In our families, we actually grow up in families that model authority. And we wonder why we don't like it when we grow up. Because, you know, when we're growing up, we say to our moms and dad, well, why do we have to do this? And they look at us and goes, because I said so. And we take that authority. And then government gives us authority, right? I mean, we have rules, we have laws, we have regulations, we have taxes we have to pay. I mean, authority is just not something that a lot of us like. But if we can learn to bring ourselves to accept authority that improves us, then we can begin to practice some, th some things that are going to make us better. Now, last week, Pastor Terry referenced Peter, the Apostle Peter, who wrote the epistle, the second Peter that we read out of. And in the beginning of second Peter one, he actually referenced himself as a slave of Christ. And then we went on to learn how even someone who references himself as a slave of Christ, one of the closest members of Jesus's followers, how hard it was for Peter to totally surrender himself and to stay committed. 
So I want to look at this for a second and talk about how hard it is as in the human condition, our struggle can be as it relates to following and surrendering to authority. So if you look in um, the handout, Luke 6, 46 through 49, it starts with, so why do you keep calling me? This is Jesus. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. In the tech world that I come out of, it's like, are you building your life as a platform? Are you building your life as an app? And we're going to spend some time talking about that in the future. But at this point, I want to actually come down and look at this first verse again. Because this first verse just, just makes, didn't make any sense. It seems really out of context because here's Jesus with his closest uh, followers, and he's kind of calling them out. So if we back up a little bit to Luke 6, verse 12, and I'm going to run through this really quickly. Um, in this account by Luke... The Bible's really cool because the Bible, you know, will sometimes give us a sense of time and sometimes it doesn't. But in this account, from Luke's account, um, this basically happens all within a day. Starts the night before and then goes into the next day. So the first thing that happens is in Luke 6, 12, Jesus actually goes to a mountain in the middle of the night and he prays all night long about some decisions he has to make. It's a great model right there. Goes all night long and prays about a decision you're going to make. Then... What happens in the next verse is he brings together all of his disciples, and these disciples are, all, are the ones that we learn about in the Gospels, people who Jesus went to them and said, stop what you're doing, drop your nets, follow me. And these people gave up everything to follow him. But even among all these disciples, what Jesus does is he narrows it down to his 12 apostles, and he does that at the break of dawn. And then after that, the group of them go down the mountain and they meet with the masses that are gathered there and Jesus does some miraculous things and he heals and he comforts and he takes care of people. And then what happens is we get to the next, we get to the next verse and go ahead. He teaches his disciples some amazing lessons. I mean, these are lessons that we all learned in Sunday school or we read in the Bible from the Beatitudes all the way down to the lessons of the tree and the good fruit. Things that can stick with us as a way of, of living in our lives. And then when he's done with that, he looks at his disciples and he goes, and we get the big bang. And he says, so why do you keep calling me Lord? Lord, when you don't do what I say. And I look at it and I go, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I mean, in our, in our context, in our, it'd be like this. The company's getting reorganized. We've got a new CEO. The new CEO looks at everybody and pulls together a brand new senior team. The new senior team and the CEO come out and they do a town hall meeting. Right? We've been in these, all hands meetings. And we, and we answer Q&A and people have problems. And, they get, you know, and the CEO and the team make, you know, resolve all those problems and everything's going great. And then the CEO turns around and says, okay, so now here, these are the values and the principles of the company. These are our objectives. This is our mission. This is how we're going to get there. And everything's going fantastic and everybody's on a high. And then the boss would look over to the senior team in front of everybody else and go, and I don't understand why you guys call me boss and you don't do anything I'm going to say. I mean, it seems like a downer. 
Doesn't seem like that's going to go down well. And you just wonder why Jesus would drop that bombshell. Well, here's what we know. Jesus knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows that no matter how hard we try to apply and we try to respond to these building blocks, to these principles, that the human condition, the human condition that we all share, makes total surrender and total fellowship always a struggle. He knows that we need to be taught through his authority what we're to practice. And Jesus, even to his closest followers, was not afraid to speak the truth. You know, it's really hard to get the truth out of people. We want the truth sometimes. Sometimes we don't want the truth. Sometimes people don't tell us the truth because they know how we're going to respond to it. Because we say we want it, but our response is going to be one that shows that we don't. But see, God tells us the real truth, whether we want it or we don't. So our first practice point is we need to allow God's authority to make us better. God's authority shows up in his word. It shows up in our prayer time. It shows up in our fellowship time. It shows up here when we accept God's teaching. Sometimes those people that we're in our small groups with will give us feedback. We need to accept that feedback. We need to take our teaching. We need to practice the new things that we're being taught. We need to allow God's authority to show up in our life. Now, if we desire to practice in these new ways, and remember, practice makes permanent. So if we desire to undo some of those things in our lives that feel very permanent, we all have something in our life that we'd like to get rid of. We'd like to change. See, God allows that to happen as we practice new ways. But if we're going to work towards this betterment, then we need to first accept a few things. And the first thing we have to accept is that change is hard. Change is always hard. I read years ago, you know the only person that likes change? It's a wet baby. <laughs> rest of us don't like change. Change is always hard, but if we don't embrace change, then we'll basically stay the same. So we have to practice these changes. And the practice might actually be the easier part. So let me show you what practice looks like. You see this picture? That's a driving range. That's a practice range. See how everything's flat, nice and green, balls are right there. That's a practice range. Now let me show you the real world. That's the real world. <laughs> That's reality. That's what the world looks like. Now sometimes when we're here on Sunday and we get our teaching, it feels like the practice range. And we leave here, we feel good. It's inside of us. It's going to be awesome. And then we go to work tomorrow. And where are we? We're back in the sand traps. And we have to work our way through the sand traps of life. So where do we start in practicing the right things to apply the promises that we read in 2 Peter 1.5? How do we establish these building blocks of faith? Well, we have to make some choices. So in the handout, I want to read along in Deuteronomy 30.20. We are going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. And we read, you can make this choice by loving the Lord, your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. 
This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's clear. We have to choose to love the Lord our God. We have to obey him. And we have to commit to him. Love, obey, and commit. Those aren't easy words. That's hard stuff. So I don't want to run past it. I want to look at it for a second. I want to think about love, obey, and commit. And I want to ask ourselves, are we practicing these words? We might say to ourselves, well, how can I love fully when I've been hurt so often? I've lost loved ones. Every time I try and love, I get burned. I even sometimes question, how could God love me when I hurt so badly inside? Obey? You're asking me to break my own will? How can I trust those things that I can't control? And commit, being committed, well, that means somebody's going to hold me accountable. And by the way, who's committing back to me? Love, obey, commit. They look easy on the practice range, but what about out there in the sand traps? Like, you don't know where I work. You don't know my family. You have no idea how many times I've been let down to the point I just want to give up. Can you hear ourselves talking? I can hear me. Because I've been there. I've asked those questions. And you know what? I will ask those questions again in life. Now I understand why it's easier to see that what Jesus was saying to the closest his closest disciples, why he would say to them, why do you call me Lord and then not do what I say? He knows how hard it is. See, nowhere does it say in the Bible, in any of our teaching, that truly loving, obeying, and committing, and following in a Christ-like way in, these, in this life that we live, in the sand traps, was going to be easy. See, Jesus didn't take the easy way out for us. So what I love about this is that even when we're in the sand traps of life, when it's hard to love, obey, and commit, God has given us his grace to get out of those things. You see, God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. If you think about it, when he asks us to love, God gave us his son. What greater love is there than that? And then his son died for us. There is no greater love. And when we're asked to obey, Jesus, you know, probably had a choice. He had a choice. But what choice did he take? He took the choice to obey, to obey the Father and to give his life for us. And then we're asked to commit. You know, there was no greater commitment than when Jesus died on the cross for us. He gave to us through his sacrifice. He gave us his grace, and he gives us mercy to fail. Because we're not always going to be able to love and obey and commit like we want to. But God's grace will get us through that. You know, he took the hard way for us. And he went through pain, and he went through suffering. So you know what? We should be able to take a little pain and suffering along the way too. We should be able to take a little pain and uneasiness in our practice. And that's my practice point. We have to take pain and uneasiness as good.
So if we want to practice for what really matters and add to our faith, then we got to go with this uneasiness sometimes. we got to go with the pain that comes. And it's like an athletic pain. Remember we had that governor with the funny accent? The guy said, no pain, no gain. It's not a very good, um, what was he? He was Austrian, right? But there's truth in that. Like, you know, we can get gain if we don't have a little pain. I mean, think about what we call it when we're growing up. It's growing pains, right? Our muscles and our bones are moving faster than, than, than we're, we're supposed to. And, you know, it's growing pains, but that's good. That's why we call them growing pains. If we take that pain and we say, it's okay, then we can move to a different place in our life. But God doesn't just let us hang out in pain. He also gives us some promises. He gives us some protection there. If you read in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he says, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. It's a promising verse because it's in the real world. It's in the sin traps. He gives us protection, but he doesn't stop there. He also challenges us. He continues to give us a new way of practicing to deepen our faith. He says, let's be clear-headed. And being clear-headed is not easy. I want to stop for a moment and just talk about it. Three different ways of being clear-headed. So I'm going to state the obvious. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's worth talking about. If we are trying to live a Christ-like life, if we are trying to follow Jesus, and we are trying to be clear-headed, we cannot do so when we are impaired or under the influence. It's funny because my 20-plus years of being an executive, senior executive in a company, most of the problems at work, most of the things that I dealt with that happened outside of the office had to do with somebody being under the influence. Bad things happen. Words come out of people's mouth that shouldn't come out. Inhibitions are dropped that shouldn't be dropped. Trouble ensues. And what's crazy about this is the world we live in, the society, the culture, just keeps saying more, more, more. I like to say that I'm never guilty of this either, but I'm like everybody else. We got to try to stay clear-headed, and we can't be clear-headed if we're under the influence. Isn't it funny how I talked about it? We don't like to submit to authority, but we'll allow ourselves to be under the influence. We must stay clear-headed. The second thing I want to say about being clear-headed is also staying calm. You know, it's funny. In, in the frenetic times, in the time of turmoil, nobody ever runs over to the person who's going crazy and saying, what should I do? Right? <laughs> we all look for the calm person. Who's the calm person who's just basically taking it in and working their way through it? You know, sometimes in the mo moments of turmoil, the moments of crisis, when we are calm, that's when we get a chance to actually share our faith. Because somebody says, how can you be so calm in the midst of all of this? It's when we can say, we have the peace that passes all understanding. Our God gives us calmness because we can trust in him. You know, in 1939, in World War II, the, the country of Great Britain was under siege, right? There were bombs coming in, little island, everything's happening. And this is before, obviously, Facebook and social media. Um, so what did we get to keep, what did the, uh, the Brits get to keep them calm? Well, they got Winston Churchill on the radio every now and then. And then they figured out that we need to keep a message out there in front of people. So they would put posters up all around the country just to try to reinforce a message. 
And here's one that's lasted. We know this one, right? We see it on T-shirts. We see it on coffee cups. We see it in posters at people's offices. 1939 to today. Why? Because keeping calm and carrying on makes sense to us. And if we can take God's calmness that he gives us, we can carry on through the troubles and the trials of life if we just stay clear-headed in our calmness. I'm going to go back to the sand trap for a second because a couple of weeks ago, earlier this month, I went to Ireland to play golf. Like I said, I'm a bad golfer. I shouldn't be playing golf in Ireland, you know, but go big or stay home, right? So, so I go over to Ireland, and uh, I come up to a par three, and a par three, you know, those who don't know the name, game, it means from the tee box to the hole, you should be able to do it in three shots. But they never make this easy. You know, it's got a green, but it's always surrounded by these things. So I take my shot. It's a beautiful shot, and where does it land? One of those. Now that is a small one compared to what I was in. I, I'm not kidding you. I'm looking up at the projector here. That's what I saw as the top. So I'm down in there, so I, I'm already distressed, even before I go. So I march out with my sand wedge, I get in there, I look up, I do this, I take my first swing, and guess where the ball goes? Nowhere. <laughs> so let's try it again. I take the second swing. This time it hits the wall and comes back down. Now, but this time it's like, okay, I'm starting to lose it. So then I take them, I swing as hard as I can. I take another one. Finally, after eight swings, because I stopped then, and I wanted to throw the club, and I was biting my tongue as hard as I could to not let words come out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, I was finished. Caddy looks over at me, this Irish caddy, kind of grizzled guy. He goes, nice try. <laughs> that made me feel good, right? So there's another ball in the sand trap. A guy I'm playing with, Brad, he's got his ball in the sand trap. Caddy looks at him and goes, here, I'm going to show you something. He gives him his putter. And Brad looks at that. I look at that. The putter, what are you talking about? Sandwich. You've got to use a sandwich here. Gives him putter. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get over the ball. I want you to stay very calm. And then I want you to swing back and give it a nice, firm swing and watch what happens. So Brad, go over the top. Nice, firm swing. Ball rolls up the hill, hits a little lip, and falls over the top. One swing with a putter. Me, eight swings. Out of control. Out of control. No calmness at all. It's a metaphor for life. We get in these sand traps. Sometimes that's what it feels like. We are in the struggle. We can't get out. Who's our caddy? Who gives us that calmness? Tr trust in God. Trust in God. The last thing I'm going to say about being clear-headed is to stay clear-headed, we have to watch what goes in here. Because to keep it clear, what goes in is typically what comes out. So the words, the images, the stories, the narratives, the things that go in are many times what comes out in those moments of crisis. And those things that go in don't always keep us clear-headed. I mean, if you're in the coding world, you know, you write software, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we're putting garbage in our minds, and that's what we do all the time, and we expect the right things to come out, good luck on that. We have to put the right things in our, in our mind. Through God's word, through prayer, through fellowship, we put those things in our mind, we stay clear-headed, and the right things come out. Staying clear-headed, obviously, takes practice. And we have to practice staying clear-headed. Okay, in Colossians 1.10, we read, 
Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. The version that I read and study of the New uh, Living Translation says, continually do good and kind things for others. And you're probably saying, Rusty, this is good. We're off of love, obey, and commit. Right now, we're into things that I, I want to do. I want to do good and kind things. Yes, they're easier to do, but it's hard to do them continuously. It's hard to always be good and kind. It's hard to do things good and kind and, and have the courage to share those in the context of, I do this because I love the Lord and I want to show my love of God to you. A few uh, years ago, a friend of ours um, that had done some volunteer work died prematurely, died at 56 years old. And we went, and Patty, my wife and I went to his uh, memorial service. And when we went there, they handed out everybody a little uh, magnetic bumper sticker, you know, it would go on your car, car. And it had two words. It said, be, be kind. And what was amazing about that day was we all held that. And there were no cynics in the crowd. There was nobody who was questioning why would we get that or why does that make sense? Because this gentleman was always kind. He didn't go from being one person to another. He was always kind. So when you looked at that and you said, be kind, it, it made sense. See, if we're going to follow Jesus and, be, and practice the things that God wants us to practice, we have to be consistent. We can't be one way today and, and another way tomorrow. We can't be one way at home and another way at work. We can't be one way with some people and a different way with other people. We have to be consistent because people are watching. And what's amazing is people who say that they're trying to be a good person and they want to be a good person, when they do something not so good, it really is like a spotlight goes on it. I mean, maybe that's part of what happened in the NFL over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Ray Rice. He got, the first guy got all the attention. Ray Rice is one of the good guys. And then we see him do something really bad, and then we wonder, was he really a good guy or not? You know, we expect the bad guys to do bad things. But when the good guys do bad things, a spotlight goes on it. So we have to continually be in our lives. We can't be one thing and be another. We have to continually be. So practice makes permanent. God is amazingly good. See, 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 while we struggle with these things, while we try as hard as we can, and while God accepts us when we, when we fall and he brings us back through his grace and his mercy, thank you, Lord, you know, we still have to work through it. And he gives it, but he gives us promises to help us. If you read in Jeremiah 17 through 7, 8, take this home with you. Put it on the refrigerator. It's an awesome verse because what God says is that those who trust in the Lord and follow me, I will do amazing things. I will root you. I will give you roots that will take through any circumstance. We're going to be using these verses in the upcoming men's retreat. If you're a man, you should come because, you know, our ability to get rooted and to stay rooted is so important because we don't know, right? We don't know what's next in our life. We don't know. Are we going to have another hot, dry year? Or are we going to have a year of storms? We don't know if the economy is going to be up or if the economy is going to be down. We don't know if our job is secure. 
are our jobs not secure? We don't know that the others that are in our lives are actually going to be there tomorrow. And, and certainly in this world, we have no idea, is it going to be peace or is it going to be turmoil? But God says this. He says, work at it. Practice. It's what I've told you. It's all worth it. And I'll take care of you. He says, I know it's hard. See, I know it's hard because even the closest to me, they failed. It's a beautiful thing that God has given us. And, he, and there's a lot at stake here. I mean, not only our own eternal lives, you know, we're you know, accepting Jesus, you know, to follow him, but it's also the others that are watching us. Um, as, as Pastor Terry said, I, I just got this appointment thing um, from the president. Well, to get there, you have to go through what's called a vetting process. Um, a vetting process basically goes like this. You sign away your rights for anybody to go find out anything about you. And then you just sit and you wait. And you wait for months while, I guess, people are combing over every part of your past. You've got the FBI, you've got the IRS, you've got lawyers. You've got to, and then up comes a com telephone conversation where they start asking you questions like, you know, in 1986, you said, and you go, yeah, I, I might have said that, I think. I mean, combing through your past, watching, trying to find things about you. It's a fascinating process. It's also one of the most humbling processes. But as I went through the vetting process, I thought, wow, isn't that what happens in our own lives? See, we're fortunate. God's, God does not vet us. God does not look at our past. Once we follow him, our sins are forgiven. He doesn't hold any of that against us. But the rest of the world is watching us. See, if you say you're a believer and a follower, everybody else is vetting you for Jesus. And they're looking for those moments to say, aha, see, you're not what really what you said you were. It's a big responsibility. And I teach kids upstairs, as Pastor Terry said, let me tell you, those kids are watching every move, every move. They want to, they, the words that come out of our mouths, the way we interact with each other, the things that we do, how we spend our discretionary time, they are watching and they are following. It's a huge, huge responsibility. So that leads me to our last practice point. Not only do we have to continually be, we have to continually be aware. We have to be aware that others are watching. So what we practice matters. You know, Lord willing, we've got a long and a big life in front of us. So it's important that we think about those things that we practice, those things that we want to make permanent, the things that further God's kingdom, the things that bring us closer to God, and the things that bring others closer to God. And we're all in different places. Some of us decided to do this a long time ago, to follow and to practice and to do the things that God wants us to do. There are others of us who decided to do it a long time ago and we left and now we're coming back. And then there are others who are just trying to get into it and say, you know, is this something that's right for me? No matter where you are, God shows up for us. He allows us if we just try, and if we just try to get out there and practice. The band's going to come up in a second. They're going to play a song. It's called Big, uh, Big Life. I love it. Um, Phil asked me, what, what would you like to have as a closing thing? If we could do this, I'd love to have this song. Because you'll, you'll hear in it, love, serve, give at every chance I give. Our lives, God wants to give us a big life. He wants us to have abundant life. He just asks us to try. 
get in there and do our best. He's there for us, but he wants us to practice. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the grace that you've given us. We, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to practice and to try. And Lord, we thank you for being there for us when we fail. You know us. You know that we're going to fail. But we thank you for the encouragement and the challenges that you put in front of us to just bring us closer to you. Each one of these moments, Lord, give us a chance to know you better and better and better. So let these words sink into our heart. Bless our song. Bless our time of giving. Take us from here this week, Lord. Put us out there in the sand traps. Let us count on you to get us out of them. In your name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.